Hello, I'm Jack, and you're listening to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast, an interview show about the Beatles' influence in the past, present, and future across the universe and across generations. Today we have a very special guest on the show, one of my personal heroes, Dr. Carolyn Porco. Carolyn is a planetary scientist who is renowned for her imaging work on NASA's Voyager missions to Uranus and Neptune in the 1980s, and for her leadership of the imaging science team on the 27-year-long Cassini mission to Saturn. It's likely that every picture you've ever seen of Saturn is due to her incredible work. In fact, Neil deGrasse Tyson calls her Madam Saturn. Carolyn was responsible for two very famous images of planet Earth. You may not know this, but she was a co-originator, along with Carl Sagan, of the pale blue dot image of Earth, taken in 1990 from the Voyager spacecraft. And she was responsible for the image and global event from 2013 called The Day the Earth Smiled. Look that up on the web if you've never heard of it. It's awesome. Carolyn has delivered multiple TED presentations of her work in planetary exploration and the beauty of life on our planet and our responsibility to preserve it. She's also the recipient of many prestigious awards, such as the American Astronomical Society's Carl Sagan Medal for Excellence in the Communication of Science to the Public, and the Distinguished Alumni Award from her alma mater, the California Institute of Technology. In 2012, she was named one of Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential People in Space. She grew up in the 1950s and 60s, decades that will always be remembered for introducing two extraordinary phenomena to the world the space race, and the Beatles. From an early age, Carolyn began her lifelong interest in space, as well as her lifelong fascination with the Beatles. She's been such a huge, die-hard admirer of the Beatles that she once led the Cassini imaging team across Abbey Road dressed as the Beatles. There's a photo to prove this on our website along with the transcript of this entire podcast, and she has dedicated her imaging work to the Beatles on numerous occasions. She's also a friend of Sean Lennon. You'll be able to find links to our website, to Carolyn's Twitter, and to everything discussed in this podcast in the podcast description. Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Jack. How are and you happy doing? Happy birthday. Today? Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm doing great. I really am. I'm doing really well. Carolyn, can we start from the beginning and can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up? Um, well, I grew up in the Bronx. I was born in 1953. So, you know, uh, my early life was the 1950s. And the 1950s were a pretty optimistic period. You know, the late 1950s came along and uh, we were challenged by the launch of Sputnik. And there was a Cold War going on, but people were pretty much economically doing well. You must have heard that, that, you know, post-war America did pretty well. And my parents were immigrants. They had come in the early 20th century when they were much younger. They met in New York City. It was, uh, I don't know, just we were pretty comfortable. We were lower middle class and money was always an issue, but there, there wasn't the great inequalities there were now and people, there were opportunities out there. So, so overall, things were pretty comfortable. Was there anything or anyone in particular that convinced you to uh, or motivated you to pursue a life dedicated to studying planets and outer space? Uh, NASA was established in 1958. So um, that's on the heels of the launch of Sputnik. So um, 
1958, I was five years old. So I really feel like my life paralleled that of NASA. I am a child of the, you know, the, the space program in a sense. And um, my early life, you know, when I'm learning how to read and so on, I remember opening up my father's newspapers and seeing, you know, pictures from uh, the moon or pictures from uh, Venus or Mars. I mean, you know, these grainy, grainy old pictures with the Rizzo dots, the very first images from planets and the moon and so on. Um, and, and then President Kennedy says in 1961 and 62, makes it clear we are going to the moon. And uh, that, I think that proclamation really set the tone for what followed. It set the tone for that kind of off the leash, push the envelope and any direction you can behavior that characterized the 60s, right? Because he, this was a president telling his people that we are going to set our sights on doing something that for all of human history had been emblematic of the impossible. And he's telling us, we Americans have what it takes to do it. We have the intelligence, we have the technological know-how, we have the grit, we have, uh, you know, it, everything it takes, we can marshal together and do this. So I think that, I mean, talk about optimism, I think, and then watching the space program unfold with the Gemini missions and so on, really set the, I mean, I grew up in that era and many of us who grew up in that era, not surprisingly, were drawn into uh, the space program. It was that kind of thrill and excitement and optimism. How did you hear the Beatles for the first time? In for Christmas of 1963, so I'm 10, I'm a few months away from being 11. Uh, I think one of my brothers gave me a, my first transistor radio. It's a little, this is like ancient history for you, a little square transistor radio about, I don't know, two and a half inches on the side, maybe three inches on a side, maybe about a half an inch thick. Um, and that was it. That was my radio. And the next day, December 26, 1963, the Beatles released I Want to Hold Your Hand. And I think I, I read somewhere that some DJs had gotten a copy of it and they were already airing it in the United States. But I didn't have a means to tune in then because I didn't have my radio. But I got my radio for Christmas and uh, and it's almost as if I flipped it on and there was I Want to Hold Your Hand almost. So um so that was that was it that was my introduction wow so what were your first thoughts when you heard them i you know like everybody then i was just captivated by the music it was just so, it was so much better to me immediately i could tell it was so much more energetic more rich uh more multi-dimensional than i mean not only in the music itself but in eventually in the context i mean the content and what they were writing about. Then the music that my brothers had been listening to, like Elvis Presley and all that 1950s rock and roll. So, uh, I mean, you know, this swept across, I mean, that's what Beatlemania was. Every all young, the younger generation really, really uh, glommed on to this. So I was no different. And then of course, we learned that they're gonna appear on the Ed Sullivan show. They were going to come to America, and I and this is something that it's hard to describe. And I haven't seen a lot of 
mean, a lot has been written about the Beatles. I haven't seen a lot written about this, but there was a lot of advance advertisement for their coming to the United States. His DJ name was Cousin Brucey. And then there was the second DJ called Murray the K. Murray the K and Cousin Brucey. And these guys made a big deal about the Beatles coming. So much so, Jack, that when the Beatles got on their airplane to fly across the Atlantic to arrive here in America, it was like the invasion of Normandy. They were, you know, the disc jockeys were saying, and now the Beatles are five Beatle hours away from arriving on the shores of America. They're almost here. And, you know, America is just waiting for uh, this phenomenon from Europe, blah, blah, blah. And then it would be, and ladies and gentlemen, it's only three Beatle hours and they will be here. That's, that's what it was like. It's like every guy, they just generated so much excitement about their arrival. And then when they arrived, you've seen, of course, all the pictures. They were shocked that they had such a greeting party. They didn't expect it. This was these exotic individuals coming all the way from England. And then they appear on the Ed Sullivan show and they've got this, you know, hair that no one had ever seen before. And, and you know, their accents. And they were dressed beautifully, by the way. Brian Epstein did a magnificent job packaging them because... You go back and look, they look immaculate. They look fresh and clean. And, um, and then of course, there's the great beetle bow. You know, they just had such class. We, you know, we fell in love with them. And then the, the icing on the cake was only a few months later in the summer of 64, uh, they, they put out Hard Day's Night. And that's when we really fell in love with them because then you could see them, follow them and witness their interactions. And so A Hard Day's Night is really what made all of us become absolutely smitten with them because that's when you could see their, pers their distinct personalities and how just absolutely natural and casual and easygoing and, and the British would say cheeky and irreverent they were and just having a great time and they were young and, um, and you know, like nothing, nothing affected them in a bad way. They just were themselves. It was, it was really, um, and then we got to see them play their music. It was great. And you've seen that movie, of course. Roger Ebert, a well-known film critic, American film critic um, called Hard Day's Night, one of the great life-affirming movies of all time. It wow. was so well done. It influenced movies uh, since then. This was wholly different. And so that's really what sealed it. Did they influence your life in any way aside from just music taste? They made life so much nicer. You know, I mean, they just make you happy, right? Everything about them makes you happy. If you turn and listen to an interview and you see how funny they can be, just naturally funny and witty. And, and they were so distinct, you know? Each of them was so distinct that, you know, they just created, you know, in, in a field of mathematics called nonlinear dynamics, there's something called a complex adaptive system, which is... You know, you have individual components and the interactions of these components is like almost unpredictable from knowing the 
individual systems, uh, you know, of themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like you could know, you could predict the individual systems. You can't predict what happens uh, when they all interact together. And that's kind of what the Beatles were. They were this giant phenomenon that was like a complex adaptive system. And they, their tentacles went everywhere because they were just so curious and intelligent. Carolyn, what do you think it is about the Beatles that makes them so much more than just a band? If I had to put my finger on why the Beatles were so um, phenomenal in the true meaning of that word, it's because they were intelligent. They were college educated for the most part, and they made music for thinking people. Really, that, that's it. They made music for people who wanted to be not only musically stimulated, but they wanted to be uh, intellectually stimulated. It gave us something to think about. And, and every single song was, and was different than the one before. They, we, we watched them evolve, you know? They were, they were open to influences from the outside. Uh, and, and that was a byproduct of their intelligence and the fact that they were, the three of them, John, Paul, and George, they were all had an artistic bent. So, um, and, and, um, and, you know, and then I could go on and on about, you know, how talented Paul was musically. I mean, probably musically, he was the most talented of them. John was like off the charts with, you know, wit and and his uh, his use of words, you know, his his facility with words and concepts and and um, you know, just they were just amazing. I I feel like I was so incredibly lucky to have been born when I was born because, like I said, I grew up with the space program. And ultimately I lived my life doing that. And then there was alongside that, there was this phenomenal, uh, you know, blossoming of art and music and so on, primarily because of the Beatles. Can you tell us about the ways in which you've honored the Beatles through your work? Of course, you know, because I love them so much and because I lived through that era and, and was so, um, so happy and grateful that I did live through that era. They set new standards of excellence and I wanted to honor them with what I did with Cassini. So as I told you, I celebrated Paul's 64th birthday um, by making a movie with 64 Saturn images and I put it to Beatles music. It was really a labor of love. It took a lot of time. I did this with a person who was working in my shop called Chris Clark. He was a whiz with software. I was the director, he was the implementer. And, and we were just did such a careful job of, you know, doing the soundtrack to sync up with what we were doing with the images. And then we made this poster. I, I designed this poster uh, that has all the 64 images and I have an inscription to Paul and I signed him uh, my name and the Cassini imaging team and I meant to send it to him. I had it mounted. It was very expensive, hundreds of dollars to get it mounted, this big thing. By the time I got ready to send it to him, which actually is embarrassing, but it was like a few years later because I was so busy. By the time I got ready to send it to him, he had sent word out that he was no longer accepting presents from the public because he had like a warehouse full of presents.
So I still have this poster. I mean, the thing that, you know, I mounted and um, I'm going to soon be making this poster available. Like if people want it, I'll sell, I'll, I'll make copies. Um, but anyway, that's what I did for Paul. And then um, be, even before I did that, I celebrated John's 60th birthday, October 9, 2000, by releasing on that day our first color image of Jupiter. It was our first color image ever. We got to Jupiter. We started our encounter with Jupiter. I just um, managed to arrange it so that we released it on his birthday. That took a little bit of political persuasion on my part of the powers that be. And, uh, and that was my happy birthday present to John. So, you know, I've been searching for all these opportunities to do things like that. That's because they, they just, you know, again, they just mean so much to me. Can you tell us a story of how the Cassini imaging team came to be reenacting the famous Abbey Road crosswalk photo? I have a feeling it has something to do with your influence. I'm very proud of this. See, this is how you know you're good. You've become quite uh, astute at being a leader of people because I managed to convince uh, six grown men to follow me in costume across Abbey Road. And we had someone take a picture of it. And I'm very proud because... Uh, you know, the internet isn't that old. And we took this picture in the year 2001. So that's already like 20 years ago. Our picture was the first picture to be uploaded on Wikipedia under the entry Abbey Road, the road. It was the first picture and for a while the only picture that was there as an example that every minute out of every day, people are doing this. And, and I'm, so I was so deeply proud. It's, it's also on my Cyclops website. You can put all the links to these things on in the podcast description. So how did you come to meet Sean Lennon? So I met Sean Lennon on Twitter. No the way. The same way I met you, yeah. I found out that he was on Twitter. So I started following him. And then I noticed he was interested in science. And he was commenting on science. And he wrote some tweet about something some great picture. And I just, I just wrote to him and said, boy, if you think that picture is cool, you should see our Cassini pictures. And I might've even put, you know, put a picture in the tweet and he wrote back and, and it immediately took off. Like he was very interested in what I had to say. I was starting to be for Star Talk, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk. I was one of what they called the, an all-star host. They, they tried this concept where they had other people who were Star Talk hosts. I guess maybe to relieve Neil from having to you know, do it all the time. And I was one of them. <clears throat> and the idea was that I would interview people. Uh, and I asked Sean if he could be my first interview. Uh, not my first, I don't know if he was my first, but he was an interview. So I interviewed him. I remember going to a concert of his in Oakland, California. I was living in the Bay Area. That's where I, I met his mom. I showed you the picture of that. Yes. I had met her. I had met her in the 1970s, actually, no when way. she was much younger and I was much younger, just briefly. But then I met her again. That was great. Um, anyway, so we, you know, we stayed in touch. He was uh, I invited him to a launch, a SpaceX launch at Cape Canaveral. 
uh, and he was, uh, I, I arranged it so that he got a, a tour with his lady friend, Charlotte, Charlotte uh, Mule. And he got a tour of, uh, you know, the Space Center and, you know, what goes on down there and, and Cape Canaveral and all the rockets and so on. I have to say, because this really meant a lot to me, uh, we were there, coincidentally, again, we were there on the 50th anniversary of the release of Sgt. Pepper. So that was pretty cool for me to be there with Sean um, on such a, a momentous anniversary. Just shows you I lead a charmed existence because these kinds of things happen to me all the time. So then um, we had planned always to do something. We talked a lot about it, doing something creative together, like doing a video using Cassini imagery with some story. Uh, he was going to do the music for it. But this is all by way of saying Sean and I kind of did this for a couple of years. Uh, and then I got really busy with the end of Cassini um, and what I had to do after the project was over to wrap things down, close out my contract. And Sean got really busy doing an album uh, with his, uh, his collaborator. And so, you know, that kind of, we lost touch a bit. And now he's very, very, very busy. He's, as I've read, he's uh, in charge now. Yoko has handed to him responsibility for the Lennon estate. He's directing something like uh, eight companies. I don't know. It sounds wild to me. Wow, really? Yeah, that's what it says. It says on the, the internet, you could find it. So, so anyway... That's, uh, that's how I met him. And we, you know, we've got pretty close. We just have not had the opportunity really to hang out anymore. Um, I've been in touch with him recently. A, a, a special event was about to happen. I can't tell you what it is because uh, it's been postponed. It may yet happen, but so we may do that in the future. But anyway, he's cool. He's, he's a very interesting character. Um, very cosmopolitan. And Carolyn, I know you've been to Liverpool a couple of times. Can you tell us about your visits there? So, I mean, this shows you how, how, what a, how obsessed I was. You know, I've been uh, about the Beatles. My first opportunity to go to Europe was, came in 1981 when I was still in graduate school and there was a professional meeting in the South of France about the study of rings, which was what I did my doctorate on. And so I went there funded by my thesis advisor. And first time I went to Europe and we, I went to the meeting and so on. But right after that meeting, I went to England and I landed in London. And instead of doing what you think someone might do landing in London and touring around London, I made a beeline for Liverpool. I had to go to Liverpool. And for me, for, I mean, remember, this is like, I think the summer of 81, John had died half a year earlier. So many of us were just absolutely stunned and grief stricken and um, just like almost walking around dazed. And I think that brought a lot of us who had lived through the 60s together, like we're calling each other up. I remember my oldest older brother and I getting on the phone, even I hadn't spoken to him in years. And suddenly it's just, you know, the kind of thing you might 
do when you're com commiserating with someone like, can you believe this happened? And what, what a horror and oh my God, this and oh my God, that. And so it just brought the Beatles into my, my you know, on my radar screen again. I wanted to go to Liverpool. It, it was a research project for me. I wanted to find out what was it about Liverpool and that area that made these four individuals what they were as individuals and then what they became as a group. My mathematical mind is saying to me, it can't just be that it's a coincidence that these four supremely talented people happen to come from the same place and happen to meet up. Everybody up there is, I mean, they are really a product of their environments. Everybody up there is very humorous and witty and, you know, quick with a reply. And, you know, they're all so charming up there. That's their shtick up there. They are absolutely lovely. And teasing, oh man, I got to know some people. I knew, I knew, I came to know people in the Lake District, not exactly Liverpool area, but close enough. You know, it's Northern England. And, they really tease, you know? So you can see where Lennon and, and all those guys, when they're teasing each other, where they got it from. And they tease to the point of sometimes I was left when my friends would tease me, I'd be left thinking, oh my God, they don't really like me, do they? Right. You know? <laughs> really, that's how it was. But they, that's how they show it, that they really do like you. They just tease the hell out of you. In their language, it's called taking the piss. Um, and I think it's a very musical place because as, you know, the history books have even said, it was a port city and, you know, records were coming into Liverpool that apparently never even made it to London, I guess. So I remember one of the Beatles saying, we got, you know, we got music that people in London weren't even hearing. So, so anyway, they, they, they were a product of their environment and, um, of course, on top of that, they were supremely talented uh, and dedicated to it. And that was, of course, of their own. Um, so maybe there was some luck in it. I know Paul has often said, he said, you know, people ask me if I believe in magic. I have to believe in magic. Just me getting together with John, like the most successful songwriting collaboration in all of history. So that, you know, they own that. But, but the area is just filled with charming people, and it's really delightful. Have you ever been there? You know, I've actually never been there. Well, go. Just don't wait a minute after this podcast is over. <laughs> you should get on an airplane and go. <laughs> I'll buy a ticket right now. It's great. It's, it, it was really lovely. Of course, this I went there. This was, oh, my God, I can't even think about it. The first time I went was 40 years ago. Wow. Ah, how could that be? How could that be? <laughs> well, yeah, you got to go back over there. I'm definitely going to go back there. Yeah, especially after this this documentary has got me all, you know, interested again in their history and You know, you mentioned the Get Back documentary. Um I would love to hear your thoughts about it. Well, you know, a lot has been written about it. People are commenting all over the place and a lot of what people say I agree with. It just was an like a stunning window into all the things I described about them, you know, their individual personalities, their interactions, uh, and the, the insights you get into just how close they must have been, um, and 
uh, and how easily things just came, musical things and lyrics and so on just came to them and their whole process. The way they made music was actually so nonlinear and chaotic that you wouldn't, you know, I mean, me being, trying to be a very linear person, being a scientist, you move from this, this is in a logical fashion, you move from that, you move to that, right? They didn't do it in a logical fashion and it just worked beautifully for them. Uh, and then of course, to see Paul, the moment that everyone has written about, to see Paul almost work himself into a trance and, and strum and sing to life, you see, get back. And he's like just forcing himself to do it. It really felt to me like he's trying to put himself in the zone, trying to get into a trance where the song just naturally comes. And by God, it did. It was just a, a stunning moment. Really, really very eye-opening. Uh, I learned a lot about they as individuals. And so I'll start with Paul. Paul um, was clearly the heart of the Beatles. I mean, when that I'm by that I mean, I think he was the one that was the most good-natured. I, I really think when we hear all the all those things that are so wholesome about the Beatles music, I think it comes from him. Because that's who he was. He even said he was brought up in a very loving family. People didn't say nasty things to one another. He describes, you know, as a Boy Scout, he'd go and visit an old lady or two in the neighborhood and just sit and chat with them to see how they were. And he'd go buy groceries for them and things like that. He didn't say this in the documentary. I've read this elsewhere. Um, he was so, so committed to his buddies, you know, the Beatles, each of them, um, so giving of himself. Uh, really, I mean, if I had to choose one of them for a friend, it would be Paul. Paul would be your loyal friend. He was the guy driven. He was driven. He had the work ethic uh, and it showed in what they did. I wouldn't be surprised if he was always the one saying to John, John, we got to finish this song. So, and, and then I have to say another insight into Paul. I mean, the poor guy, John, who had been the de facto leader early on, was kind of absent, right? You could see that. He's checking out. He's kind of taking a back seat. He's not driving the bus. He doesn't want to drive the bus anymore. So Paul has to move into this role. It's a role, I can tell you, being the leader from experience, you know, being the leader is not necessarily being the most liked person because you're the one that's got to crack, crack the whip on people. And here he is trying to herd cats, right? Trying to get everybody going. And he gives, in one place, he gives this fabulous inspirational speech, little speech where he says, you know, if there was ever anything good about us, if we've got our back against the wall and, you know, we can, we managed to pull out of it. And I, you know, I watched him through all this documentary and I think, I thought to myself, they could make a primer on leadership based on his behavior in this documentary. Next, I go to John, and it was so eye-opening to witness John in action with his fellow Beatles, not as a person being sat in a chair with a microphone in his face being interviewed, which is the only other uh, um, channel through which I ever got anything about John, right? 
That was all there was. You watch him perform and then you watch him being interviewed. And in those two places, he always looks so strong and confident and dominant, quick with the word, quick with the witticism, uh, always had something to say, always looked very assertive, right? Mm -hmm. And I see him finally in this documentary and he looks fragile. He looks fragile, he looks insecure. I, I mean, there were so many scenes. Do you remember the scene when Paul comes up to him, very dominant, like, so have you written any songs yet, John? Oh yeah. And all John can say is um, he takes, like affectionately kind of punches Paul and says, nope, I have nothing. Uh, as if like, you know, I don't know, maybe this was his, his stab at being dominant in some way to kind of punch him lightly, but um, basically, you know, it was his sheepish way of admitting, no, I don't have anything. And just various places where he's, one, one place where he says, oh, I don't like my voice. He never liked his voice, but he says, I don't, my voice is rotten. I wish I had yesterday's voice with today's backing. My voice didn't sound good. He's just not the confident person he projected. Despite what people saw presented in the Beatles, he was actually very vulnerable and very weak. Uh, for all the reasons that we know now, because he had a very troubled childhood. So that was a great eye-opener to me. I feel like I finally got to know what John was like through this documentary. And then, of course, there was George, and I really, you can't help but feel sympathetic towards George. Look at the situation he was in. He comes in as the, the younger of all, the youngest of all of them, when they started, they were just teenagers. So that means a lot when you're a teenager, right? And also he hadn't even fully grown yet. So John and Paul were of course, looking at him as just the sidekick. And I don't think, you know how these things go once a relationship gets set, it's hard to change it, especially when they're family, when they're very close relationships. So I think that was George's, you know, situational tragedy that he could never really stand astride John and Paul because they wouldn't let him do it. You know, just innately, they always looked down on him, not down in the sense that you're no good, but down on in the sense that you're not up to our level. You don't have the same say in the choice of songs. So, and you could just see him pushing up against this and running into it and it just was painful you know, especially knowing what he produced. I mean, there's a scene where he says to John, you know, I've got, I've got like three albums worth of songs that are backed up by, you know, to do, I'd like to do my own album. And John thankfully says, oh, that would be nice. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. You should do that. So that was kind of a bone thrown to George. Um, but I, I, you can't help but feel sympathetic for him because he's so gentle. He's just such a really a gentle soul. Uh, and so kind to Ringo. Remember, he's teaching Ringo how to, how to, you know, work his song. And then we come to Ringo, and I didn't ever think much of Ringo. Not that I disliked him at all, but I just, you know, never appreciated the drums, you know. And then in here, you get to see what an impossibly lovely guy he was. So friendly and and um, cheerful when you know when it was required and just always like being the loyal friend and the, the just the lovely guy, but like the support wagon, you know, the guy is always there to support 
support them all. It didn't matter. One video on the web said this. It didn't matter how many takes they, you know, had to go through where they wanted. He's always there, you know, doing his drumming. And then, of course, you know, I, I've heard since in the videos that are on the web about this documentary that, you know, he would endure many, many, many takes. You know, he'd just get there, but always drumming his drum, never complaining. Oh my God, this is the hundred and second take. You know, <laughs> he would just do it. Just a good-natured person, uh, and and you know, actually beautiful in a way. I never appreciated that. He's just—he's got these beautiful. You may not, as a guy, appreciate this, but he's got these beautiful big eyes, lovely, lovely smile. I mean, really, I just have now great love for Ringo. I really do. We did have the impression from the 1970s Let It Be documentary that, you know, they were just at each other's throats. But knowing that they were not, and that largely it was very collaborative and joyous and happy and fun, and they were like in their 20s and still having a high old time, that, that has felt so good to know. And then, of course, knowing that after the, the Get Back album and the concert was done, I don't know, a month or two later, they're back in the studio and they're doing Abbey Road, which was one of their best albums. And they went out on an amazing high note. I mean, really, I, you know, I, and, and one thing I want to say here, I, I don't know if, if anyone else has ever said anything about this, but probably, but this has got nothing to do, well, I'll say it, it's okay, because you just, it's got nothing to do with Get Back. It's got to do with Abbey Road. It was, stunningly great and also really to me regretful that the one and only jam that the Beatles ever recorded was the, the end, the second side of Abbey Road, where the three guitarists are just going back and forth. And I thought that was, even when I was whatever I was, like 16, um, even then I thought, my God, this is so spectacular. Why did they never do this before? Because it, I, I mean, how do you feel about it? That jam, that- Oh, I thought it was their best musical moment ever. I was always obsessed with that moment. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead and, and different jam bands. And the Beatles can really jam too. And I wish they got more credit for that. George Martin said like it was as if they were in their Hamburg days again. They were just standing around in a circle, just smiling and playing guitars with each other. Yeah, because I, I mean, they probably planned it, I guess. I don't know if they wrote the notes down or they did it, but, but it really felt very organic. Like they were speaking to each other, but only with their guitars. Uh, and I just, God, they could have done that for an hour and I would have been, I would have listened to that. So that was, it was just a shame there wasn't more of that. So. Anyway, they, they, were, they were just so phenomenally good. So where do you think the Beatles are going to be 50, 100 years from now? Or do you think they're still going to be this popular? Well, I just want to remind you and your listeners that for just about every circumstance in one's life that you can think of, there is a song title or there is a Beatles phrase in a song that fits it like hand in glove, you know? And, and this, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm, I, maybe I'm overreaching here, but I, I, I attribute this to Paul because 
Paul was really the storyteller. He was the one who loved to celebrate the everyday and the ordinary and speak about just, you know, Eleanor Rigby, Father McKenzie, um, uh, you know, Desmond and Molly. And, you know, he was the guy most often, I think, who brought in these characters and he would paint vignettes and so on. They, they created a universe, really, in their catalog. There is a universe that you can go into and live and just get to know these characters and all these events that happen. And so I think that's why, and I think Paul was largely responsible for it, and I think that's why you can find something appropriate for you know, every kind of feeling or emotion you might, uh, you might have. And so in that respect, they, are, they were like modern day Shakespeare's. You know, Shakespeare wrote plays for the, the everyday person. And that's why he was popular and why his stuff has endured. And I think the Beatles stuff will endure. I mean, look, it's endured for 52 years, for God's sakes, and more, of course, if you go back all the way to the beginning. Uh, it's stunning to me. I, I can't even get my head around it. You're much, much younger than me, but I live back there. It's stunning to me to realize that already over a half century has happened, right? And we're still talking about them. And there's still, there's young people like you, you've discovered them. So, you know, there's, excuse me for saying, there's nothing so special about your generation in discovering them because generations between yours and mine discovered them. So. I think they will endure like Mozart, like Beethoven, like Shakespeare. This, is, this was an enduring uh, catalog that happened to be created at a time when, well, just happened to be created in the middle of the 20th century. And I don't think we're going to see anything in the musical arena that's going to be like it ever again. When you listen to the Beatles music, do you get a similar feeling as when you look through a telescope at Saturn or Jupiter? <laughs> it makes me happy. It, it makes me happy. It, and I guess in that sense, yeah, it makes me, when I look through a telescope or I just go outside and I look up at the stars at night and I realize where we live, uh, how precious our lives are, how lucky each of us was to be born. I mean, the improbability of any one of us being here is so off the charts infinitesimal that when you really are confronted with that and you take the time to dwell on it, you can't help but just be, wow, really. And especially when you look at the universe and you feel, you see how small we are, how grand it is, but yet, how powerful it is that we have come to know that you know our intellect has allowed us to grasp what our cosmic circumstances are. That is a, a that is a reason not for feeling small and scared. It's a reason for feeling exalted and grateful that we know so much. I mean, really, that's how I feel about my life. I feel like, wow, I've got to live. If you want perspective on your life. Just go out on a starry night and look up and think about what you're looking at. Look at the Milky Way. Think about what you're looking at. You're looking at the edge of a gigantic disk of stars that is your home. That galaxy is your home. And so I feel exalted and grateful 
when I look through a telescope to see Saturn or I go out and look at the stars and I feel, it's true, I do, I feel exactly the same way. When I listen to the Beatles, I feel, I can't believe I was born when I was born and then I got a transistor radio the day that I Wanna Hold Your Hand was released. I, and I turn it on and there's that song. And that was my intro into this universe that ended up being created over the next six years. So it, it's all about being grateful. I'm grateful and happy. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Carolyn. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for having me and doing this. It's been fun. That wraps up a bookmark episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. Thank you, Carolyn, for coming on the show, and thank you all for listening. Links to everything we discussed in this podcast will be in the podcast description, so please check them out, and please follow Carolyn on Twitter, at Carolyn Porco. Check out her website for amazing images of Saturn that you will only find from Carolyn Porco.